0: Oh, h- hello there. It's Ann Althaus, your podcast, your blogger back again. I took a few days off from the regularity of podcasting every day. And with four days to make up for, I'm also thinking of this as an opportunity to kind of creatively shift what I'm doing with the podcast instead of trying to read every word of the blog and then comment on it. that's That's too much. You'll have to look to the blog itself if you want to read everything. I I especially don't want to keep reading really long quotes. I'm going to maybe not uh, podcast every day, but I'll just do it if I feel moved to do it, but I'll do it at least every few days. And I'm going to pick out the posts I most feel like talking about and the ones that have the least potential for getting bogged down into long quotes that I mainly end up just reading and then not saying that much about. So we'll see how this goes. I'm going to do them in the order, not in chronological order, but in an order that I think allows them one to flow into the other. So I'm trying to, I'm going to try to get, mm, this is kind of an experiment today where I've kind of planned the order that I'm going to do them based on themes that I think could develop if I talk about it the right way. So we'll see how that goes. Now, um, I'm gonna start with a post that went up the day after Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving was the first day that I didn't do a podcast. So I have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and today is Sunday, four days. I'm gonna begin with something that happened to go up on Thursday. And this actually has two, begins with two embedded videos, which obviously I can't share in the podcast, but I have a video of Donovan in concert singing the song, There is a Mountain first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. And then a second in bed, which is Bob Ross, the wonderful Bob Ross. These are both sweet men with curly, uh, dark hair who seem gentle and uh, pleasing and comforting in certain ways. And uh, Bob Ross is painting steep mountains. And You know, I have Bob Ross just because I wanted to go and hear the song There is a Mountain Again and to read the lyrics of that because it had come up when I was out running and I just had my songs on shuffle and that came on and was a significant part of my run as I do my dawn run out in the forest. There is a mountain, there was no mountain, there's some gentle hills, gentle hills, like a gentle uh, singer or painter the hills where I was running were gentle, and the gentle song, There is a Mountain, came up in my, play, in my playlist, Shuffled. And I kept thinking about it, and I wanted to look up the lyrics and read the annotations to the lyrics. So this was at the lyrics. The lyrics are, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. There's some other words, but those are the most memorable words. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain. Then there is. And at the Genius, Genius is a nice website for the lyrics. I always go there when I want to read lyrics because they, I like the way it looks, and it has annotations. And it usually works out pretty well that if the singer, if the songwriter has said something about the meaning of the song, or if there have been interviews or standard ideas of what things referred to in songs, you'll find it collected there in all likelihood. So here's what I read at Genius annotation. Quote, there is a Mountain by Donovan was released as a single in 1967. The lyrics reference a saying by, now I'm going to say a name that's Chinese that I have no confidence that I'm saying it correctly, but I'm just going to try to say it. Lyrics, the lyrics reference a saying by Quing Yuan, Wexin, Weixin, W-E-I-X-I-N. Here, translated by D.T. Suzuki, quote, Before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. But now that I have gotten its very substance, I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains once again as mountains. And Rivers, once again, as Rivers, close quote. Searching for the song uh, that morning, that was Friday morning, Google gave me the Donovan clip. I love his shirt, I said, reference, which was a reference to another Donovan song, I love my shirt. It's a blue shirt with little planets and moons and suns on it. It's It's a hippie shirt. It's a gentle hippie shirt, and there is a mountain presents just a perfect, gentle, hippie vibe. And in, I have to say, 1967, I was 16. So that's very meaningful to me. Uh, Google gave me that Donovan clip and Bob Ross, just threw in Bob Ross like that. He's got a mountain too, a steep mountain. So I thought it was, I just thought it was cool that when I went to, that just by chance, the song comes up in my shuffle. And then when I look for it, because it stayed with me, uh, I'm given this other thing, Bob Ross, with his mountains. And uh, and the two men, Donovan and Bob Ross, seem to, seem to go well together. Now, next, I want to talk about the mysterious metal monolith that was found last week in the U- Utah desert. And as the New York Times puts it, the mysterious metal monolith that was found last week in the Utah desert has vanished. And I said, um, I question whether the monolith has vanished. If you're with me in a room, then you leave and come back a week later, and I'm not there. It would be a gross failure to follow Occam's razor to say that I had vanished. In all likelihood, I walked out, and I continue to exist. I've gone somewhere else. You just don't know where. The question is, who extracted the 10-foot tall steel slab from its precisely hewn hole in the rock, and where have they taken it? My guess is that the same art installation folk who set it up in the first place have precision cut a new hole and moved the slab to a new place so the process of discovering the monolith can happen once again. I assume the thing is still in the Utah desert in a new and different location. First, there is a monolith, then there is no monolith, then there is. The performance art continues. Perhaps you'll be the one hiking around the Utah desert who will discover the new location. It makes me think of the old traveling gnome prank. Do you remember that? Maybe you thought it was invented for the movie Amelie, but no, it's a prank that goes back to the 1970s and the movie Amelie. Amelie was from 2001. That was an excellent movie, cheerful movie in that uh, dire year, 2001. But uh, you know, the garden gnome, the traveling garden gnome. The concept of, this is a quote from the Wikipedia article on the traveling gnome prank. The concept of the traveling gnome dates back to the 1970s when Henry Sunderland photographed his own garden gnomes, which he named Harry and Charlie, while he was traveling around Antarctica. The earliest record of a prank involving a traveling gnome is from Australia in 1986 when the Sydney Morning Herald reported an Eastern Suburbs gnome owner was distressed when she discovered her gnome had been stolen at the weekend. A note was found in its place Dear Mum, couldn't stand the solitude any longer, gone off to see the world. Don't be ba- don't be worried. I'll be back soon. Love, Bilbo, XXX. A running prank has developed, which has made national news at times, where people steal a garden gnome from an unknowing person's lawn and then send the owner photos of the gnome and sometimes cryptic messages that were supposedly written by the gnome for a time as a practical joke before returning it. I remember that. I remember reading about that in the 1970s, because as some of you know, longtime readers of the blog may know, in the mid-1970s, in the early 1970s, I had a job. This was after I graduated from college. I went to art school. So five years before I ever went to law school, I was a graduate of art school, and I worked my day job in New York City was at a market research firm where we classified all the articles in magazines and produced a monthly report telling advertisers what proportion of various subjects were in the different magazines. So we had to read all of the magazines in the course of deciding what categories every article was in and measuring How long those articles were so you could see what percentage of the editorial content of Ladies Home Journal was devoted to interior decoration or something like that. But we read all the magazines. I read so many magazines. I read Grit. I read uh, things I wouldn't otherwise have read. I read Sports Afield. I read uh, all sorts of things like that. And all the women's magazines and so forth. But uh, Time, Newsweek, all the news magazines as well. But, uh, so I knew, I really knew about all these things that were going on in the 70s, whatever. It was a little bit like blogging, you know, because uh, whatever happened to come up, I would see it. And and we would talk about it and laugh about it. We had plenty of time, It, it wasn't that hard of a job. In fact, we could read and fool around and horse around and bullshit about whatever was in the magazines, all we wanted. It was actually, it was actually a pretty entertaining job. Uh, but I remember reading about the garden gnomes. They were, they've they been around for a long time. But uh, what does that have to do with the art project, the lofty art project of putting this monolith in the desert? Is it lofty? I don't know. They don't even really know that it's an art project. I mean, it could be aliens. It could be something else. But basically, I think it's pretty obviously an art project. It's a metal structure, a metal... Um, elongated rectangle that's sticking up in the desert in a way that's very evocative of the movie 2001, so the monolith in 2001. But uh, we don't know how long it was in the desert before it was discovered, but shortly after it was discovered and its whereabouts figured out, it disappeared. No, but it didn't really disappear. I mean, it is somewhere. And if they'd have kept cameras out there, it wouldn't have disappeared like a magic trick. People came and got it, obviously. Who got it? Did people who just wanted it come and take it? Because it wasn't supposed to be there, so anybody could steal this piece of artwork, maybe put it up in their backyard. Just come get it, take it but uh, it looks big enough that it would be, and I don't know how, I assume it was very firmly stuck into the rock. I I read that it was, that the hole that it was in was cut pretty precisely for that thing to then be set down in, and that was the support. I don't know. None of the articles I've seen talk about how deep the hole was, but maybe the hole went down um, two feet, and it was dug straight into that in the proper rectangular shape to hold it quite tightly. I think pulling it up I don't know how heavy it really was. Maybe it looks heavier than it really is. How thick was the steel? But uh, it must have taken some work to pull it up out of that hole and to move it. But maybe people figured out how to do that. Somebody figured out how to put it there. I tend to think it was removed by the same people who put it there and that it's a continuing art project and they would put it somewhere else in the desert maybe they wouldn't, maybe somebody just took it to go put it in their backyard and they got a free work of art. But I think if the artist were determined enough to put it there in the first place, if the artist is still in with us in this world, maybe the artist has vanished the way people do when they die and the way steel rectangles, elongated or not, do not just disappear. But if the artist is still around, I would guess that he knows how to move it around, knows how to install it, and is motivated to put it somewhere where it's hard to find and then enjoy the process of it being eventually found. But there is a particular artist who some people think it looks like the work of, who has put up sculptures that are then found. He makes them hard to find. But he, he died back in, I think, something like 2011. Sorry, I don't remember his name. Um, but he he's already died, so it's possible that it's been out there a long time that he put it up. And uh, now he's in no position to move it. But if somebody else was doing artwork like that and that person is still around, I'm going to guess that they're motivated to move it. Uh, to come get it and uh, re re-experience the process of finding the monolith, a little bit like the traveling gnome, where um, he's somewhere, then he's somewhere else. You know, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. But I thought it was odd of the New York Times to say that it vanished. But you know, it's a, it's 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 not journalism to say that it vanished. It's poetic. It's literary. You can say something vanished. You know, you were in the room a moment ago. I left and came back and you were gone. You vanished. You know, you left without telling me you were leaving, right? You might say, oh, he vanished. I got up to wash my face and when I came back, he was gone. He had vanished into thin air, right? We don't really think people vanish when we say that. We know they got up and walked out. We just are, are, speaking poetically when we say they vanished. But uh, I guess it's such a common poetic form of speech that the New York Times doesn't notice when it's using a word like that in a journalistic context and I think really misusing the language because the thing did not vanish. The thing was taken away, was removed. Now you could say, oh how do we know it was removed? Remove implies that some people came and got it, but if nobody saw them, how do we know people came and got it? Maybe it did disappear. Maybe aliens put it there and they had a way of causing it to disappear through some scientific process that we don't know of. And so if no one was there watching it and seeing people come and get it, we can't say that it was removed and it's actually more accurate to say that it disappeared. Because we were there seeing it, and when we saw it, it was there. And when we came back and looked again, it was not there. So the firsthand knowledge that we have is that it vanished. But I think, uh, so you could say, if journalism can't make these leaps, maybe it shouldn't say that it was removed. How do, how do we know that people came and got it? Was removed. Somebody got it. I think we know that. It didn't leave on its own. It didn't get up and walk away. Well, maybe it had some kind of motor or device within it where it actually could get up and move. Maybe. Who knows? Now, the, I had the nice experience this morning of the very next post that I wrote. I'm doing this one next because I put the posts in thematic order, but this post actually did come up as the next post, just by chance, just through my normal approach to blogging. And that is about a structure out in the um, uh, hinterlands, out in the rugged part of the country that is there and maybe won't be there later. And that is the wall, the border wall that the Trump administration has begun, has been building. And this is a, also, a New York Times article that the headline is a rush to expand the border wall that many fear is here to stay, despite the president elect's vows, despite the president-elect's vow to halt the project, the Trump administration is expanding the wall at breakneck pace, and here's a quote from that article: president-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. has said he hopes." To halt construction of the border wall but the outgoing administration is rushing to complete as much wall as possible in the last weeks in power dynamiting through some of the border's most forbidding terrain the breakneck pace at which construction is continuing all but assures that the wall whatever mr biden decides to do is here to stay for the foreseeable future establishing a contentious legacy for Mr. Trump in places that were crucial to his defeat. In southeastern Arizona, the continuing political divisiveness around the president's signature construction project has pitted rancher against rancher and neighbor against neighbor. The region is emerging as one of the Trump administration's last centers of wall building, as blasting crews feverishly tear through the remote Palancio Mountains, where ocelots and bighorn sheep roam through woodlands of cottonwoods and sycamores. This isn't just heartbreaking, but totally pointless, said Diana Hadley, a historian whose family's ranch includes much of Guadalupe Canyon. She said natural barriers had long served as a deterrent against crossings in the remote area. Karen Hasselbach, who lives on another stretch of the border in Arizona near the San Pedro River, had begun likening the border wall, which she despises, to the work of Christo, the Bulgarian-born conceptual artist known for epic-scale environmental projects. I try to look at it as a temporary art installation. My hope is it gets torn down. And I was very, I love Christo, by the way. Christo and Jean-Claude, um, uh, I have a series of documentaries about that them that has made me really, really love them. I originally didn't like Christo and thought there was something arrogant and ter- rubbed me the wrong way, seeing the projects as they were written up in magazines and so forth. But the documentaries really changed my mind. And I have a, Uh, video here. It's not the documentary series uh, that uh, I particularly like, but it is a Smithsonian Magazine uh, video that will give you some look at the Project Running Fence, which is the one most like the border wall. It's a long, maybe 40-mile fence. It's mostly made of fabric, but it goes across the landscape and obviously was temporary. But what was distinctive about what Christo and Jean-Claude did with their projects was that it wasn't just the Finnish project that was the project. The project also included their own efforts to get people, local people, to understand and agree and be heard as they opposed the wall. They had to win them over. So it's—now, Trump had to win over the people by winning the election, but he only had to win over half the people, approximately half. And he did make the border wall his signature issue when he ran for election in 2016. He had to get that much support, but still half the people didn't like it. And maybe not everyone that voted for Trump was also for the wall. How popular was that wall? So it remained contentious. He didn't really win over a consensus about the wall. And it's been a struggle ever since, although he kept building it. And part of the idea is, well, once it's there in a tangible reality, really embedded in the ground, um, it'll be hard to take it down. So it's not quite like Christo in that, of course, it's meant to be permanent, but also um, it the the winning over of the people was not a complete project on Trump's part. He only won over half the people and then he forced it on everybody else. And of course, Trump Trump's administration was able to use the power of eminent domain and require people to give up their land. Uh you know, it it wasn't it wasn't based on consent. It was based on getting enough political power and then ramming it through. And so that doesn't even aside from the fact that it's permanent and not temporary. It doesn't have the feeling of a Christo project because because of that forced quality. Uh, you know, the idea, I won the election, now I get to do what I said I would do. That's the nature of politics. And usually artists don't have to win anybody's support and they can just do things on their own. I mean, if you wanna paint a painting or write a novel, you can just compl- or write a blog or do a podcast just do it your way. Nobody needs to like it. You don't have to get anyone to agree. And that's the beauty of free speech. But when you do something to the great landscape, you know, you got to, you've you've got to engage in an interface with other people. And you can make people very, very angry with you. Uh, You know, you're putting your mark on the face of the earth, especially if it's a permanent structure. Now, I want to talk about, I have a couple of posts about The Crown that I want to talk about. So the first one I want to talk about, let me see. If there were a TV show, this is a quote from a New York Times article about The Crown that begins, if there were a TV show that portrayed your family as a clueless bunch of snobs and philanderers who helped you If there were a TV show that portrayed your family as a clueless bunch of snobs and philanderers who helped drive a mentally fragile young princess to despair, would you watch it? And I said, my answer is, hell yes. The question is posed in the first paragraph of a New York Times article with a headline that also asks a question. Royal watchers wonder, do the royals watch The Crown? So I assume the TV show in question as I try to answer my question that's asked about me, you know, we can all answer this question. If there were such a TV show about your family, would you watch it? Because, you know, you can't get the actual answer about whether the Royals are watching The Crown, but you, I mean, they keep it secret, but there are a few hints, but um, basically the one way to ask the question is, well, if you were them, would you watch it? But you're not them but you're you, but what if there were a TV show that was the equivalent of The Crown, but it was about your family? (laughs) Now I have to assume that the TV show in question would be an extremely high quality production with great writing and acting and cinematography that doesn't purport to tell a strictly accurate story, but to dramatize everything for artistic purposes. Okay, so I don't need to worry that everyone's gonna think this is the exact truth. It's just based on my family. So I've lost control of that. Also, it's already on. It's not like I get to decide if there should be such a show. It's everybody, other people are watching the show. There is such a show. Would I watch it too? Or would I just protect myself from it because I don't wanna upset myself? Now, and it's not a bad show. It's a great show that people really like and it's been done really well. And they say it's fictionalized. They're not saying, This is the truth such that I have to worry about suing them for libel and that sort of thing or I need to get involved in correcting them. No, I don't have that kind of power. I don't have the power to get the show off the air. I don't have the power to make them change the way they're doing. It's already out there and I can't stop people from watching it. It exists and it's about my family and it shows me, plus it shows the other characters as a clueless bunch of slob, (laughs) I mean (laughs) snobs. they might be slobs too, and philanderers who helped drive a mentally fragile young princess to despair. Now, obviously, my family didn't didn't have any connection to princesses, so uh, you'd have to have something equivalent to that. Maybe we've driven some young person to despair or something like that, but if we did, anything that's like that, ways in which we've uh, caused distress for young people or fragile people, uh, that would be That'd be right there in the show and exaggerated for the purpose of entertainment. Anyway, I said I'd love to watch. They're already using me, and I am being consumed by the general public. That's going on anyway. On the other hand, I kind of stopped reading the question after snobs. I think it would be great fun to watch a show that amped up the cluelessness and snobbery of me and everyone I cared most about. I think that'd be really funny uh <laughs> you know when you answer the question you think well i bet i'd come off better than somebody else or maybe there's someone in your family that you'd like to see get their come comeuppance so, or you'd like them to have a little insight into this or that thing that they do or maybe you're just completely cool with people making fun of you just get it out there I'll i'll be a figure of fun you know that's one thing i like about trump is that he completely accepts that people are making fun of him all the time. People like to say, "Oh, it, act like it must be really bothering him because he's such a narcissist. It must be really disturbing to him." But uh, I don't see that. It seems to me he can totally take it and he just likes being the center of uh the center of things. And so if if they're making a show about me, well, you can't call me a narcissist for them deciding to make a show about me. I didn't cause it to be made about me. But if it's gonna be there and it's about me, uh, should I be so uh, touchy and fragile that I have to protect myself from it? And what good does that do when other people are watching it? Or will I find a way to enjoy it? I will find a way to enjoy this show. The linked article only has a few clues about whether the royals watch The Crown. I think the question whether they would watch, that is whether you'd watch if it were you, is more interesting, but here are the things that are in the article about, that are some clues about whether anybody watches. The actress, quote, the actress Vanessa Kirby, who plays Princess Margaret in the first two seasons, told Vanity Fair a few years ago that a friend of hers had once met one of Queen Elizabeth's granddaughters, Princess Eugenie, or was it Beatrice, who said that her granny loved it. I'm pretty sure that the Queen, Prince, uh, and then Richard Palmer, who writes about the Royals for the Daily Express said, I'm pretty sure that the Queen, Prince Philip, and Prince Charles don't watch the Crown. Some Royals are apparently being performatively anti-Crown, making their views, if in fact they have views, known via a network of friends. Olivia Coleman, who plays the Queen, said she once sat next to Prince William at a dinner, and that while he was charming and gracious, their exchange didn't go very well when the crown came up. He asked what I was doing at the moment before he quickly added, actually, I know what you're doing, she told an interviewer. I was so excited and asked, have you watched it? His answer was a firm no. Um, and I said, uh, and then I, I, I added, I hope The Crown eventually has episodes that show the characters fussing about the TV show, The Crown. If they did that scene where Prince Williams, where, where Prince William says, actually, I know what you're doing to Olivia Colman, they'd have to get another actress to play Olivia Colman. I like when things go meta like that. So uh, the Queen would be, no, there would have to be a, an Olivia Colman character in the show, but it couldn't be played by Olivia Colman. Although I think when the show progresses to later times, they're going to get another actress to play the queen and it won't be Olivia Colman anymore. So it's possible that in, in that they could get Olivia Colman to play Olivia Colman. That would be weird. A difficult question. How will, how will they handle that? Anyway, um, I like when people are watching watching their own show on TV. It it all goes back to the Burns and Allen show, doesn't it, really, in the 1950s sitcom with George Burns, where they had scenes that were their family life in their house, and then sometimes George would be upstairs in the TV room watching the show on TV. So in the scenes that he wasn't in, he was able to watch them like we watched them, and then he would turn around and talk to us. Uh, it's a early, early television meta stuff, so... Maybe maybe it's old-fashioned to go meta now. Going meta, that used to be uh, important. Now, the other Crown episode is over here. Let's see, i got my various tabs I'm shuffling around. And this one is from a New York Times, a lot of New York Times lately, from a New York Times article. The Crown, this is the headline, The Crown stokes an uproar over fact versus entertainment, dramatic liberties in the latest season of the Netflix series covering the turbulent 1980s are annoying Britons who wrote of that period, even among those who disparage the royals. And here's a quote from that article. Behind the frustration with the Crown is a recognition that right or wrong, its version of the royal family is likely to serve as the go-to narrative for a generation of viewers, particularly young ones, who do not remember the 1980s, let alone the more distant events covered in earlier seasons. They'll watch it and think this is the way it was, said Dickie Arbiter, who served as a press secretary to the Queen from 1988 to 2000. He took issue with parts of the plot including a scene in which aides to Charles question Diana about whether she's mentally stable enough to travel alone to New York City. I was actually at that meeting, Mr. Arbiter said. No courtier would ever say that in a million years. The biggest problem, said Penny Junior, who has written biographies of Charles, Diana, and Mrs. Thatcher is that the crown poses a threat to Charles who arguably comes off worst in the series. It is wonderful television. It is beautifully acted. The mannerisms are perfect, but it is fiction, and it is very destructive. And I said, I'd avoided The Crown, but in the last two weeks, I've watched the first seven episodes of season four. After seeing the first three episodes, I subscribed to Netflix, something I'd been avoiding for years, I'm now a netflix person and i find it quite mesmerizing i'll finally be able to cancel the cable series which is so much more expensive and which i wasn't watching at all anyway historical fiction what do you expect you've got to criticize the inaccuracies but also realize that this is the way it's done it's a much bigger problem that journalism is inaccurate and unprofessional but it's completely professional for television and movie dramas to twist characters and events to make things exciting and interesting. How else can you do it? I like Junor's statement, the mannerisms are perfect, but it is fiction and it is very destructive. The perfect mannerisms, how can they be perfect and yet fictional? Belong especially to the Charles character. Are they destructive because they are true or are they destructive because they are false. So, yeah, you might wonder, how did I watch those episodes of The Crown before I subscribed to The Crown? Well, we actually we actually left town for a few days uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a, an Airbnb in Brown County, Indiana, And we went down on some good weather days to mountain bike, mountain bike and hike. And it was quite pleasant and absolutely socially distanced and lovely. I'm going to, I think we're going to do more Airbnb things in the future. We'd only done that once before. But uh, if you get good at selecting places, it can be very nice and it can work out better than a hotel if, if, for COVID purposes because uh, you don't have to have any contact with anyone. You know, you just go in through a code, keyless entry system, and uh, it's, all, it's all there. You don't have uh, anybody at a desk that you need to deal with or any maids coming in, and you can keep yourself, uh, keep yourself safe, keep yourself secluded. There are secluded places, maybe places more secluded than your own home Now, why would the internet, here's the next post, why would the internet have corrupted Republicans so much more than Democrats, the global right more than the global left? I'm reading, the rotting of the Republican mind when one party becomes detached from reality by David Brooks in the New York Times. So he's asking, why would the Internet have corrupted Republicans so much more than Democrats, the global right more than the global left? My analysis begins with a remarkable essay by Jonathan Rauch, who pointed out that every society has an epistemic regime, a marketplace of ideas where people collectively hammer out what's real. In democratic non-theocratic societies, this regime is a decentralized ecosystem of academics, clergy members, teachers, journalists, and others who disagree about a lot but agree on a shared system of rules for weighing evidence and building knowledge. This ecosystem, Rauch wrote, operates as a funnel It allows a wide volume of ideas to get floated, but only a narrow group of ideas to survive collective scrutiny. We let alt-truth talk, Rauch said, but we don't let it write textbooks, receive tenure, bypass peer review, set the research agenda, dominate the front pages, give expert testimony, or dictate the flow of public dollars. Millions of people have come to detest those who populate the epistemic regime, who are so distant, who appear to have it so easy, who have such different values, who can be so condescending. Trump and his media allies simply ignore the rules of epistemic regime and have set up a rival trolling regime. Now, that's the end of the quote. Brooks goes on to blame distrust of experts, and anxiety about social and economic conditions. But he never explains why this would happen on the right, but not the left. Nor does he attempt to demonstrate that the problem does in fact belong to the right and not the left. That is, ironically, he himself does not follow a shared system of rules for weighing evidence and building knowledge. And it's so ugly to speak of rotting minds. You'd better be sure there's no rot in your own before you express that kind of emotive contempt and disgust. What makes you so sure you and your friends constitute an epistemic regime that ought to be deferred to by the people you obviously regard as deplorable? You're putting it right out there in the open. And you assume that the non-elite people of the left are already in full deference mode. Why? What more can I say there? I mean, you see, what I'm, you see my point of view. It's that there's this idea that we have a marketplace of ideas and it works to get to the truth. You know, that's the kind of free speech, um, uh, that's the orthodox idea of why we have free speech so we can have a marketplace of uh, ideas and it's the best test of what is true. Um, But do you really get to the truth? Um, People who believe in the marketplace of ideas don't necessarily think that's what gets us to the truth. It might not get us to the truth. Just because more people buy it doesn't mean it's going to get us to the truth. These are ideas that are commonly gone through when we talk about uh, how free speech works. Some people think uh, there's value to free speech quite aside from whether the marketplace of ideas really work. And, um, you know, most of the elite uh, thinkers that I've run across, and I've taught uh, free speech among other legal topics, um, don't don't believe that the marketplace of ideas gets us to the truth. So maybe that's why people like Rauch and Brooks are drawn to a notion that you can't really have all of the people involved in deciding what they want to buy in the marketplace of ideas. You have to have some special people, some better people, who are doing the selection. You know, it reminds me of all of these um, articles about choice. That uh, the par- I think there's a book called The Paradox of Choice, the idea that if you have too many products, too many things you can choose from, that you'll actually do a worse job and somebody ought to be making the selections and limiting what your choices are, you really can't do it yourself. Notice that there is value to freedom and value to everybody participating in making their own choices. Even where they make bad choices, there's something good to that. But here, Brooks is simply bemoaning that people are thinking, uh, reading, hearing, ideas for themselves and thinking about what is true they're not doing a good enough job they need to defer to their betters but they're not going to do that now by saying oh it's just the right who has this problem it's not the left that has the problem uh i i don't even know where he comes up with that idea just the idea that the the left is accepting the better ideas is that really true Well, will prove that You know, it's just a given. He's just using that as an article of faith, right, bad, left, good. What's so, uh, where's the uh, admirable epistemic regime of coming up with ideas like that? I find um, find that not very convincing at all. Oh, now, there's one more thing, or there are two more things, and I lost one. Okay, wait a minute. There's one more, there's two more things I want to talk about, and as long as we're talking about disgust and contempt, they kind of, they kind of lead in that direction. This is from an article in The Guardian called, I Stopped Trying to Control My Body, The Women Who Gave Up Grooming in 2020. Quote, legs have bristled beneath the embrace of thermal leggings. Chins have sprouted solitary hairs like lone flags atop the summit of Everest, fluttering proudly in the wind. It was not a strike, per se, but a national grooming hiatus. Practical reasons alone cannot explain why so many women have opted to grow out their hair color or rewild their eyebrows. The pandemic has uprooted all of our ways of being in the world, says Jacqueline Wong of the University of South Carolina, an expert in gender and attractiveness. The fact that women aren't doing this beauty work is exciting to me because it represents a disruption of how they normally comply with our society's expectations of femininity. When I stopped shaving, says Georgia Collier, 26, from London, it started out because I wasn't leaving the house so there didn't seem to be much point. But then it changed. When everything else was spinning out of control, I stopped trying to control my body. I decided to just be who I am. So that's one reaction to the pandemic, is to lose control, to let everything go, to stop doing these neat little routines about yourself, and to be more Loose and free and un and and uncareful, you know we have to be so careful about the disease that maybe it's a nice balance to be uncareful about the things that are going wrong with our body or going why even say they're wrong, what is right, what is wrong? uh we're on our own, but uh another article that I saw that had to do with how people behaved during the pandemic was again in the New York Times quote, this is the headline, what we can learn from solitude. Contemporary hermits are reaching out to people struggling with isolation. Their message, go inward and get outside. So we're hearing from hermits. And they can live, this is a quote from the article, they can live anywhere but tend to reside in modest dwellings and avoid moving around unnecessarily. Nevertheless, a hermit should not be confused with a recluse. The difference is that hermits do not exit society because of misanthropy. I would define a hermit or a person who chooses solitude as one who chooses solitude for spiritual reasons. And we do accent the spiritual, but it can be be any form of spiritual. And that last part was a quote from Karen Carper Fredette, and she is a 78-year-old woman who lives with her husband who's 71 and who was a Catholic priest. And she spent the first 30 years um, in, after high school in a monastery before live, leaving to live as a hermit in a cabin in West Virginia. And we see, there's a great photograph of them at the article of the two of them standing on a rock in this woods And there's a quote in the article from her about that rock. We have a rock, a huge rock, that's sticking out of the mountain. Her name is Petra. And we have a path that leads right out to Petra. And when things are difficult, I go out and I lean on Petra and I say, give me some guidance. I like that this post has a landscape quality to it. When we were talking about the monolith, then we were talking about Trump's wall. Here's another rock. So, these are places, places in the landscape. Now, the Fredets, who are both hermits together now, in the religious sense, um, the Fredets, this is also from the article, the Fredets and other hermits believe that anyone could benefit from incorporating some eremitic fundamentals, such as being rooted in place, practicing austerity, and committing to a daily schedule that prioritizes prayer or meditation to help them make sense of their isolation into their lives, regardless of personality type, religiosity, or life circumstances. So um, they're genuine hermits in the traditional religious sense and they're making YouTube videos and talking to the press about what they have to offer that could be used by people who are forced into solitude. Now they the hermits choose solitude. We're all having this solitude of a sort imposed on us by the uh by COVID-19. Um but so there's an aspect of being a hermit that isn't available to those of us who are living like hermits because it's forced on us. So it's more like being in prison. And yet what can the hermits teach us? Maybe they can teach us things that there's something that, to know when something's forced on you, that it's something that some people would choose voluntarily. You know, it's just talking about free speech and the marketplace of ideas and the paradox of choice, this idea of choosing and freedom. So um, if you have something imposed on you that you've got to do, it uh, you're deprived of your choice, and yet it may be helpful to know that this thing that's being forced on you is something that some people choose. Some people like this, would put this as the best way to live. And even if it's not your choice, you could perhaps, when it's forced on you, find value in it, make good out of it uh, by understanding the way in which it operates for people who do choose it and see it as the, ideal way to live the way they want to live they're not um they're not exiting society like a recluse because they have a problem with other people uh, but there's a, a higher calling that they're responding to and when you're forced into solitude perhaps you could learn from them and find a way to value value it for yourself so there's these qualities being rooted in place, you know, your home, you have to stay in your place. There's no traveling, there's no going here and there, but it's a specific choice to stay in one place, to stay rooted, to practice austerity, right? That the austerity becomes a positive thing that you would choose, you could choose. I know you're not probably choosing it, but if it's imposed on you, maybe you could see it from the perspective of the people who would put austerity as the highest way the best way to live committing to a daily schedule that prioritizes prayer or meditation so doing the same thing every day having an actual rigorous full day schedule in your rooted in place and with austerity uh, those are those are things that are maybe tough to live with and you can feel very resistant to having them imposed on you but if you really are in this place, maybe seeing the value that they find in it that makes them choose it is something that will be that will be good. And uh, you can watch them on YouTube. So that's also something you might do. They want to give their advice. They think they have something to offer. So listening to their point of view, see how that works for you or maybe just decide, I'm going to make this solitude, this limitation, I'm going to make the limitation good. I'm going to make the fact that I can't go anywhere positive. I know I used to have a thing of, uh, I had to walk the same path to, from my home to work, and I used to use the walk as an opportunity to observe and to reconfirmed to myself that there were always new things to observe, that even in a walk that I've done a thousand times, that I've looked around a thousand times, that at every moment it was nevertheless possible to look and see new details. So the environment that you're in really has much more to it than you're ever observing. And you might think, I need to go to different locations to look at different things. But really, there are things you've never seen right around you, right in your own home, right in your own off walked path. And uh, and maybe you could just become more alert, more aware of those things that are really there for you. And for religious people, you could have a religious perception that's not uh, available to you when you're rushing around, going here and there. Maybe being in one rooted place can give you access to many, many new things that were not, that would not otherwise be available to you. So it's an opportunity. Staying in one place, having nothing you can do. This one, uh, one more article I'll talk about, and that is uh, a New York Times article. Welcome to our museum of smells. We asked. New York Times readers, what smells they would archive in their own smell museums? What scents are so alive for them that they've become part of them? Now this has something to do with both the David Brooks article that showed disgust for people and also the Hermits article that was about being truly aware of the place where you are. I mean, what are those important smells that are in your memory that means something to you. Those are probably gonna be things that have to do with the people or things you've lived close to, where there's tremendous emotional meaning in something. Not to say that traveling doesn't expose you to smells. I myself, as you may know, have a very limited sense of smell. So one reason I'm not so keen on traveling is that I think the experience of going somewhere might uh, and in really being there, as opposed to just reading about it or looking at pictures, what's the really vivid experience of being there? Maybe that has to do with the capacity to smell. They talk in the article about how when you, know, when you smell, the actual substance that you're smelling, the molecules of it are in your body, are going right there into that olfactory nerve and having an effect. It's not like when you see something, the thing doesn't go in your eye. But when you smell something, the actual molecules of the thing are going into your body. I think. Isn't that scientifically true? I don't know. Ask the experts. But I, uh, I quoted a few of the, the best things in this New York Times article that were collected from people. They all seem to be from older women talking about memories of men they loved. And men might think of themselves as being kind of gross and smelly, or there's nobody really wants to smell them. And yet here are these beautiful statements by women. I I quoted three of them that I thought were, were just wonderful, talking about men. And then uh, in, in the comments, one of the commenters said something that was also a woman speaking about a man. So there's four quotes here, three from the article and one from the comments on my blog that I'm going to read to you. So the first one is from a 57-year-old Indianapolis woman. I wish there were a single word for the smell of sawdust, motor oil, and soil. That combination of manly smells always makes me think of my father who worked with his hands all his life. It is what I smell in his garage. 25 years after he has passed away, it makes me feel safe. And then there's when I was growing up, my dad owned a concrete business. To this day, the smell of newly poured concrete at a construction site stops me in my tracks, and I think he must be somewhere nearby. And then another one, my late husband had a particular scent, and it was strongest after he'd been exercising, particularly under his left armpit. There was a smokiness to it, certainly, but also a pleasant tang, almost a citrus-like astringency, and I couldn't get enough of it. My own word for it is raunchious, which isn't a real word, but I didn't want to say raunchiness, as what I'm trying to get at is a combo of the words raunchy and delicious. And then the one from the comments is from Eleanor. And this is great. This is actually better than any of the ones that got into the New York Times. Um, and the the word um, the word safe also appears. So in that first one, that I read, the one about the motor oil, sawdust, and soil. The woman had said it makes me feel safe, so in in the Eleanor quote, it also has the idea of safe, safeness. She wrote, my grandfather died when I was two. I have no visual memories of him except from photos I've seen. One day as an adult, I was talking with my mother, and I said, I don't know why, but the smell of leather and peppermint makes me feel safe. She started to cry. When you were a baby, my father used to pretend to steal you by putting you inside his leather jacket. He always kept peppermint candies in the inside pocket.